Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is your favourite absent producer, Liam Halverson, today hosting the second ever episode of the Plebs on Everything podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. So, if you missed our first episode, this is a spin-off podcast where we keep away from the Plebs on Footy terrain and we have more of a chat about other sport or media that may be catching our eye of late, any new topics, interesting topics that may be around. Think of it as the chocolate topping to the Sunday that is your usual Plebs on Footy podcast experience. So just that little bit of extra goodness to help you get through your day and give you that little pep in your step. So today we've got a ripper show lined up for you. We're going to have a quick interview first with Rory O'Kane to talk about the FIBA World Cup madness that went on overnight with both the USA game and the Australia game. Following that, we'll just have a quick chat about the Ashes series as the fifth test is coming tonight starting on the 12th of September, the night we are recording this. So really, we've got to have a quick review of that series and talk about how things look going forward. So first, we'll jump into this interview with Rory O'Kane and then move on to the cricket. So joining me now for our first ever guest host on the Plebs and Everything podcast, we have your second favourite Plebs on Footy host, Rory O'Kane. Rory, how are we? Uh, slandered is how I am. I do not approve of that at all. Uh, I'm never coming back on unless you change my introduction. I, w- I want uh, my rightful, uh, rightful place acknowledged in the pantheon of plebs on footy podcast hosts. And that's number one. I'm, uh, I'm not going to, not going to hear anything else. <laughs> Look, we'll have to, we'll have to negotiate the title at very least. Uh, the reason I've got you on today, Rory, is, uh, there's been a bit of madness overnight in some FIBA World Cup basketball we had the quarterfinals overnight uh and of course usa lost to france 89 to 79 uh and i really wanted to get you on so we could talk about this because this is pretty crazy and unexpected all things considered yeah first loss in 58 matches in tournament play uh they lost their first game in 100 and something matches uh to australia just before the world cup and they should have lost to turkey as well so they haven't actually been dominant at all like we normally see is the first loss since 2006 for them, but they just didn't look better than everybody else, which is normal. what we're used to seeing from them. So it's, if we'd looked at it closely, not had this uh, context of them being the great side in basketball, we probably wouldn't have said they were favorites. Yeah, exactly. That's very true. And really looking at the story of this game down the stretch, uh, the best player on the court by a pretty wide margin seemed to be Rudy Gobert. Uh, He dominated on both ends. Uh, and particularly defensively late, he had those huge yeah. blocks on Campbell Walker and Donovan Mitchell that really just put the U.S. in their place. He was not going to shut up about the Donovan Mitchell block at training camp. <laughs> you can just tell. You can absolutely tell that he's going to be a talking point and he's going to hold it over him for the entire year, and as he should. But if you looked at the squads going in, Gobert like, genuinely is the best player in on either side. He, like In NBA quality terms as well it's not like he's the best player in international ball between the two sides because there's a little difference there but he's the best player in the NBA on either side too he's significantly better than Kemba I'd say oh yeah absolutely uh, and it's even arguable that um Fournier outshone Donovan Mitchell in this game uh, Fournier Rudy just goes teammate. nuts yeah. in international ball speaking of uh, <laughs> people not going to shut up about it it uh when they get back to the NBA, uh, his teammate Nikola Vucevic uh, tweeted as much saying uh, he doesn't want to have to hear about it, but he knows he's going to have to. So uh, I think Fournier might be a little cocky coming off his uh, French summers historically. 
<laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. Especially some of those buckets he was getting where the essentially late in the shot shots. clock. Yeah. Late in the shot clock, just throwing it up over the top, over a contest and making it mm. was just crazy. Uh, but the bigger point and the story I really want to focus on uh, is <laughs> our big boy, Frankie Nealakina. Are you on Frankie Island with me, Rory? Uh, I'm coming around to it. I knew this is where he was going, but he looked really, really good. He looked so much more confident with the ball than he did when he's playing for New York. And he looked like a real player. He didn't look like a guy who could only defend. He seems like a one-side-of-the-ball player when he's playing in the NBA. But here he was hitting contested threes. That one he hit late in the clock shot. <laughs> late in the shot clock uh, towards the end of the fourth quarter it was absolutely huge. And if he brings that at all to the NBA, it could be the confidence booster he needs to justify his draft position. Look, shout outs to uh, a favorite of ours, Kevin O'Connor at the ringer, who's <laughs> gone with the Neil Aquina Island. Um, look, you really, the confidence he had is just what completely lacks at the Knicks. And the question is whether the Knicks can even bring that confidence confidence out of him given how bad the organization is i'm pretty skeptical uh i'm on free neil akina island as well get him out of there get him somewhere where he can yeah. put up some shots and get some confidence to be fair that's not uh the knicks having a problem with neil akina they have that problem with every player so <laughs> <laughs> not not exactly sure they uh, can be blamed for just vilifying him as a player but i I just can't. I'm just so impressed by the French performance, especially coming off a loss the round before that put them in the seemingly harder side of the bracket. Now they've only got Argentina in the semifinals, who, while pulling out a massive win against Serbia, don't look the same class of uh, team as France do. So they should have a golden run to the final. Yep, and it's it's looking good for them. A rematch with Australia could well be on. Uh, turning that to the juicy. US now. Uh, turning to the US, looking at. Uh, the stars who are meant to perform for this U.S. squad, um, it was really clear how much Kemba Walker really struggled in this situation. He got a bit ball-hoggy in the fourth, which was weird because he'd sort of given Mitchell runway to take over for the first three quarters, but, yeah, just decided decided enough was enough. It was his time to shine, and it just wasn't. Those free throws he missed uh, late in the fourth quarter just killed them. It killed the entire U.S. team, to be honest, the Marcus Smart ones as well. They were four for 11 uh, for their last 11 free throws after making their first 10. So they just capitulated the line late. And Kemba just, well, Boston looks bad now. They have four of their players. <laughs> they were Team USA and didn't come up good at all. Yeah, Team USA Boston is uh, is looking in real trouble right now. I guess, though, Tatum didn't play. So maybe if you're a hardcore Boston stan, you can say Tatum would have made 10 points difference. I'm not yeah, sure that's going to fly. They've still got uh, Gordon back at home, too. So, you know, who knows? Maybe the chemistry will be there with all five of them. Yeah. Uh, moving, though, on from those canvas struggles, looking at the U.S. squad more broadly, uh, I think there's some serious issues with the US squad they brought in. Obviously, they were under a bit of pressure and duress. So many people dropped out late, so it was tough to put a mm-hmm. squad together. But even so, I think the way this squad was picked was not a particularly good squad, and they picked some weird guys who aren't particularly talented over just going youth, because it sounds so- like people like De'Aaron Fox, very talented, turned up and trained with the squad, but it sounds like he dropped out late because... Popovich wasn't giving him playing time. Why you would pick Derek White over a young De'Aaron Fox? I can think of a reason why Greg Popovich would, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) maybe the Spurs connection. Yeah, uh, I 100% agree with you, but I don't think it's just the youth side of things that they screwed up on. They didn't bring enough big men. International ball 
is not the same as NBA. Small ball doesn't win everything. The only competent big man they had was Miles Turner, and he's not. He doesn't exceed the level of competency. Who and he just got eaten alive by Gobert. They mm. didn't. The, the next in line was Brooke Lopez and Miles Plumley, and those guys just aren't really good enough to be playing this kind of basketball. They don't bring what you want from this kind of for this kind of uh, play. And they had not. They don't have many options, which is the interesting thing. The only notable big men that didn't make the squad, outside of you know Davis and stuff like that, who rejected it, were Bam Adebayo and Thaddeus Young. And they're not great players as much as I get as a Miami Homer with Bam. And I love <laughs> Bam, but he's like I think he would have played a lot and been good at the level, but he's not a he's not the best big man or anything like that. It's an area where they don't have the depth that other nations do. Mm. You could really see in that last quarter when they were trying Harrison Barnes at the five and uh, Jalen Brown yeah. at the four because they just couldn't keep Turner out there. Turner was getting scorched off the yeah. floor in pick and roll defense and just by Rudy Gobert in general. It was it looked really really bad. And I think something I hadn't thought of until you mentioned it. Bam out of bio, they needed him. Like wasn't he in the uh, in the select team? And yeah, they yeah. Up picking him. He was. It was in the. He was in the initial squad, like the 18-man squad. It's a little rumor that he got into an altercation, and that's why he didn't, uh, why he didn't make the squad. But I've got no idea whether or not that's true. You kind of hope it is because it seems like a bad decision to leave him behind. Otherwise, if if you wind up playing Barnes and Brown as your two bigs, it's just not good enough. And they took too many wings. I think they pretty much outside of Kemba and Mitchell were running mostly wings and they were not particularly skilled wings either. They weren't your normal sort of Paul George's Durant's and LeBron's where we're used to seeing from them where they can do it all. It's guys like Joe Harris and Harrison Barnes who are good at one, maybe two things. And that's it. You need to be able to pass. They don't move the ball enough. They were way too isolation heavy and they just, yeah, they were way too stagnant because they had a bunch of 3 and D guys that didn't have any skills outside of that. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of building on that point as well, even the guards they took were all score-first guards. They didn't really have any yeah. primary facilitators. Kemba can do it, but really, I think someone like De'Aaron Fox would have been so helpful purely because he is more of a pass-first facilitation point guard, someone to run the game. Whereas Kemba, you could see when the game got tight, he kind of forgot to pass. And I do wonder whether De'Aaron Fox would have had that same problem. Uh, and it's something I think they needed. Yeah, it just I think their team selection was what cost them as much as anything. And not team selection from a, we couldn't access our best players, because that's true. But the quality of players they did bring across were still better than other teams. Everyone else was bringing non-NBA players. And this team was loaded to the very end of the bench with NBA players. Some of them not great NBA players, but still NBA players. And they didn't really have enough pace on the ball either, I didn't think. Kemba's reasonably quick, but he's more crafty. Mitchell's reasonably quick and yeah, very athletic, and he was their best player. They didn't have a lightning bug point guard or anything like that. They went for a lot more steady hands, and I just don't think that was the right idea because they couldn't get enough penetration. Mm, absolutely. So looking forward now, you've got the Olympics next year. It's not the mm -hmm. usual two-year turnaround now. It's only one year. Which Does is, those... I think, one reason that cost them because no one wanted to back it up twice in mm. a row and everyone wants to go to the Olympics. Mm. So does the US go big stars again or do they go young next year? What do you reckon? They'll go big stars. There's no way they're risking losing two tournaments in a row and especially not an Olympic gold medal. 
They'll send guys like Harden and Davis, I reckon, will show up. Harden's 30-ish, maybe 31. Uh, he's got one more Olympics in him. LeBron's not turning up. I don't think Steph will either because he's done it before and is a bit more injury-prone. But they should get a higher quality of player. And guys like De'Aaron Fox aren't saying no anymore to that. I think it'll be a lot more stars and no less people pulling out full stop. So you're not thinking it's a team of Zion, Trey, JJJ, all the future stars coming in and trying to throw some. Honestly, plenty of those guys, plenty of those guys could make the squad, but they wouldn't be making the squad because they're young. They'd be making the squad because they're good enough to make the squad. Mm. I think Zion is every chance of going after his first season in the NBA. It's probably like the perfect time for him. I doubt the Pelicans will get too far in the playoffs, so he won't be too weighed down by a, a long schedule a long summer or anything like that. So I think if he's going to play probably from the get-go is the right time for him. And guys like Jaron Jackson are in the same position. That's when, and Jaron Jackson made the select team. So he's in the frame and that's when you want to be going sort of your second, third year. You want to enter the squad. Your seventh ish year is around when you want to be a key part of it. And then you cruise off it afterwards and just reject it every overture from there on. And I think that's (laughs) the way it'll still go. I don't, I don't see too much changing. Team USA seems to be about cycles more than anything else, and I don't think they're going to put a system in place that's uh, repeatable anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. But I think moving on to the much more important game overnight. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's get our, our big patriotism flowing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, boy. Big boy boomers overcame the Czech Republic. Uh, my boy Sadoransky couldn't do it. Uh, 13 assists, though. Oh, yeah, he was good. I'll tell you what, he was actually good, and he's been good all tournament. But I think the key thing to take out of this game is that Paddy Mills is the GOAT. Yeah, and I said before that I had a take about Paddy Mills, and, uh, yeah, I'm ready to unload it on you. I'm ready. If Australia win the World Cup, I think Paddy Mills should make the Hall of Fame. It is the Basketball Hall of Fame. It considers international ball and college ball both of which he's excelled at. He's the leading scorer from the 2012 Olympics. He was the second leading scorer from the 2016 Olympics. He's the leading scorer at this World Cup. What more can you ask for an international player? And it should be recognised if he wins a gold medal. Best player on a gold medal team. I'm telling you what, Mm -hmm. I I am on this take on the ground floor, Rory. This is a fantastic idea. I think it's... It should be uncontroversial if they win. Really. <laughs> He's an NBA championship. His jersey was retired at the college level. He made the two-time Western Col- Conference College uh, first team. Just what else can you ask for out of a player? Probably his jersey will be games, retired but... at the Spurs too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, off the bench. But his jersey will be retired at the Spurs too. I you have reckon? no doubt. Yeah, he's oh, a club I'd, champion. I'd be staggered. They, they the Spurs don't. Spurs have enough like actual champions like Tim Duncan and Manu and Tony Parker to get through before they actually get to someone like Patty. They have so Oklahoma City retired Nick Collison's jersey. That's yeah. the only person I can think of that is at a similar level. And Patty Mills is better than Nick Collison, but with a yeah. similar similar level of uh, elevated to retired jersey because of their uh, cultural importance to the club. And I don't see. I don't see the Spurs needing to resort to that to get their first jersey retirement up. <laughs> okay. They've Fair got a point. slightly Fair richer point. history. Mm. But looking at the Aussie team as a whole, the thing that's impressed me all tournament and even in the lead-up games is just how awesome their ball movement is when it's yeah. working. You like it just the ball's to, around. 
you got to give credit to the coach. I'd say his name, but I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> The only problem is we occasionally do get a bit too sloppy with turnovers. Earlier on against the Czech Republic, this first quarter especially, Joe Ingalls was forcing it a bit much and just turned two or three turnovers that just didn't need to be made. And it's the only reason we haven't flogged teams because every time we uh, play someone we're better than, we take the foot off the pedal and just start trying too much and have sloppy passes. But our three-point shooting has been lights out. I want to give a massive shout-out to Aaron Baines, who's looking like joining the 50-50-90 club, and he's not far off the (laughs) 60-50-90 club. He's having an absolutely insane World Cup. Have you ever heard of anybody shooting like that? It's nuts. It's all oops and threes. That's all he's doing, just just getting (laughs) those dunks and getting those threes. It's amazing. Boston will be kicking themselves. (laughs) Yeah, and he's going to ruin his career by playing in Phoenix. So (laughs) bad luck to him, unfortunately. Stuck behind DeAndre Ayton. Don't mm. think they can play together. So mm. <laughs> might want to might ask for a trade. Yeah, even Andrew Bogut's looked pretty good. His de- defense, particularly in the pick and roll at times, has looked suspect as we know it is. But offensively, yeah, he's, he's looked good. Now, well, he's always been a fantastic passer, and he had a few more skills before Omaris Stoudemire broke his arm. But in <laughs> FIBA ball, when the when the key uh, thing key strategies about ball movement. He just fits in seamlessly because he's such a smart player. He fits in with handoffs, good passes. He's just a fantastic guy to move the puzzle around and just get openings for everybody else. Mm, absolutely. And of course, Chris Goulding, we need to give a shout out to him because he's been on fire the whole tournament. The man yeah, basically can't miss. You know the best thing about him. What is the best he's, thing about he's him? He's a North Melbourne supporter. Massive Aye. North <laughs> Melbourne supporter. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, you know, for that reason alone, he should be starting. <laughs> you know we're meant to keep off football on this part of the podcast. I know, I'm trying not to uh, <laughs> step on my own toes here, but it, when a guy goes for North Melbourne, I'm going to bring up that he goes for North Melbourne. Can't <laughs> yeah, help can't, myself. Can't keep you off it, can't keep you off it. Um, really, I've got a take though for you. It, it's going to be, it's a question, but you'll, you'll feel my take coming from the question. And that is, um, do we even need Ben Simmons on this team? <laughs> I knew that was what you were going to say. <laughs> the way you led into it, I was sure that's what you were going for. Ben Simmons would be fantastic at this level. He would be so good. He'd have so much athletic superiority. And having him, we wouldn't play him as a point guard because uh, of the other personnel we have. We just couldn't afford to uh, keep Mills and Delavadova off the floor, who are actually good players at this level. But putting him as a four, a guy who could... Uh, run after a rebound. Looks like he might have a shot, so maybe he can stretch the floor a little in the future. If you, if you take any YouTube videos into account and trust them. Uh, but no, he would make this team significantly better. He'd fit right in. His passing is good enough. He's used to playing with a low usage. In Philadelphia, he doesn't... As much as it seems like he handles the ball, his usage is in the teens. So he'd be able to fit seamlessly in with guys like Mills who and allow them to keep uh, penetrating and stuff like that. He'd just be fantastic. I, I'm refusing to acknowledge that take, Liam. <laughs> mm. Well, it, it, I think when our starting four is Landale, um, I think yeah, Ben Simmons might be, might a, be a bit of an upgrade. <laughs> Especially if Ben Simmons does start shooting the ball, that'll make a big difference too. But even without it, it seems like you can have someone like Ben Simmons who isn't quite so floor spacey in international ball because it yeah. is more a bit more condensed and a bit more um, uh, bashing bodies. Like Ben Simmons yeah, would be very, very physical. good in that environment. Mm. Yeah, mm. he'd absolutely fit in. It's probably a better style of play for him uh, to actually thrive in. But when you look at the Australian side, we're missing 
five NBA players, I think I had at last count. And there's another one on the way in Josh Green, who's uh, recruited to Arizona in the college season coming up, and he looks like he'll be a lottery pick. So it's really good signs for Australia going forward. I think we're probably the most depleted side outside of the USA, and we don't need excuses. We still get it done. Exactly. Um, Looking forward to the matchup against Spain, how do you feel going into that? I don't know. I feel weirdly confident, um, mainly because I don't know the Spanish players that well because a lot of them are EuroLeague players, and I think they're quite good, but I haven't watched enough of them because I'm not going (laughs) to lie, I don't watch EuroLeague basketball. (laughs) Uh, There's a few that tried their hand at the NBA, like Rudy Fernandez, and they've obviously got Marcus Sol and Ricky Rubio, so they've got talent, uh, but... I'm not particularly aware of their talent, so that's probably giving me a false sense of security. Mm. Well, it seems Rubio is excellent at the international level. Um, He's got a record which speaks for itself, and he's been playing well in this tournament too. Uh, But the Aussies just seem they're on a good roll. Like I'm feeling pretty good about this semi-final, and I think the Aussies really could get it done and get to the final. Yeah, well, if they keep hitting threes at the rate they are, it's been unbelievable. They do not miss. They take half their shots from three and seem to hit half of them. It's... It's just incredible. Everyone seems to be able to shoot when you're getting 50% from the three-point three, three line from your center. Like, what else can you ask for? It's just been an unbelievable shooting display. Exactly. And uh, we'll be looking forward and watching that one, that's for sure. Uh, so thank you, Rory, for coming on and talking some basketball with me. It's been a pleasure. No worries at all. Happy to do it any time. Thanks again to Rory for that wonderful interview about the FIBA Basketball World Cup. We'll be looking forward to that semi-final with Spain and see if the Aussies can really get it done. Moving on to the other side of the world over in England at the moment. Uh, On the 12th of September, the night we're recording, the Ashes are about to start for the fifth test. The Aussies will be going to try and win 3-1 and the English will be desperately trying to draw the series. Really, before we talk about this test that's upcoming, we need to do a quick recap and review of this series so far. So the Aussies obviously wrapped up the series uh, in the last test, they uh, they were just simply too good. Or more specifically, Steve Smith was too good in that last test. And the English just folded. They got close, I guess, in the end to tying it. Uh, they were, what, 11, 12 overs away. Uh, but that was with the help of a fair bit of rain. They lost a fair bit of play because of that rain. So it wasn't like the English were actually that close, all things considered. Even with favour on their side with rain, they couldn't quite do it. And the Aussies have retained the Ashes. They won it at England. Uh, this, is, this is something that hasn't happened since, what, 2001? 2001, yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, obviously, the Aussies are over the moon. And let's be honest, uh, I hate to admit this as a Kiwi fan, but the Aussies have been the better team for the majority of this series. Uh, they've bowled really well and consistently, uh, apart from a few instances for instance obviously headingly there was an issue they didn't bowl well to ben stokes when he started teeing off and they've had a few instances where they've bowled a bit short of lengths when the pitch has been helpful and they've let the english batsmen kind of get away with a bit but really you can't complain about the way they've bowled hazelwood cummins even stark in the last test pattinson earlier than that and siddle the pace battery has been great and nathan lyon while not up to his usual lofty standards has been perfectly serviceable Really, apart from that final innings at Headingley, you can't complain about how the bowlers have gone at all. Uh, the Aussie batsmen have been okay. Uh, really, they've been poor if you take away Steve Smith and Labuschagne. The rest of them haven't made many runs at all. But 
when you have Steve Smith scoring 200 plus runs a test and Labuschagne scoring 100 plus runs a test, uh, it makes it pretty easy to win tests because you have at least 300 runs on the board each innings. Makes a big, big, big difference to the game. And really, the Aussies have rode that wave of really Smith excellence and then Labuschagne support as well. And they've just taken that as far as they can got him. Steve Smith really is freakish, isn't he? Like, it's, it's clear that he surpassed any conversation with even the other greats currently or potentially modern greats that have retired. So he's better than Kane Williamson. He's better than Coley. He's better than Root. He's better than even, at the moment, he's better than Ponting and Sankara and all those greats, Callis as well. He's statistically unmatched. And it's scary if he can keep this going. It'll be scary how many runs he can score both volume and in the time limit that he has, because Australia will keep playing a lot of tests and he's going to keep cashing in. If you don't bowl right to him, he's going to keep cashing in. It honestly astounds me how much that England, through this series, have kept bowling balls at middle stump, full of a length, and then have still been surprised when Smith steps across his stumps and just smacks it through mid-wicket for four. And it's like they expect him to miss. You know, he's scored, what, 500-plus runs this series, and they still expect him to miss and to get out LBW. That just doesn't happen. Unless you're moving the ball a significant amount and the pitch is giving you some help, he's never going to miss those. So I don't know why they've kept trying to bowl there. The other thing is Smith adjusted really, really well uh, to the problems he got into with the short ball earlier in the series. It was clear he had a tactic and he applied it brilliantly, which is basically as soon as he saw a ball short of a length that was going to be bouncerish height, anything even he could identify as short, he just ducked. And he looked silly at times. He didn't have the most convincing looking ducks from an aesthetic point of view. But in true Steve Smith fashion, he just ducked and got out of the way. And it was a, it was a dot. It wasn't a, a chance. It wasn't a wicket. He just got out of the way and then played the next ball on its merits. And that resulted in Steve Smith staying at the crease for a long time and the English wasting a lot of time bowling bounces at him on a deck which didn't really help them do that. It's pretty simple, really. If you don't bowl well to Smith and if you give him free balls to get his eye in at the start of his innings like the English did, he's just going to cash in. He's going to score 50-plus, 100-plus runs and it's really hard to win the test from there. Really, in this series, I don't think it's unfair to say that Smith is the difference between the two teams. The one test without Smith was an absolute nail-biter, and the test with Smith, each of them, Australia, has been in really, really strong positions. And you've really just got to take your hat off to Steve Smith, and the way he's playing at the moment is just incredible. And I, I really haven't seen anything like it before. Looking forward to this fifth test now, uh, we've got the teams out, or at least we have the 11 out for England, and Australia at this point have only released their 12, not their 11. But we have to talk about, for Australia, perennial disappointment. Mitch Marsh makes his long-awaited return into the, le- into the playing 11, or 12. He might not be picked in the end. Um, he makes it into the team at the expense of Travis Head, who started okay in the first test. He made some 30s and some, some starts, but he really he struggled. So it makes sense that he's been dropped. But I think everyone really wants to talk about why is Mitch Marsh still getting a go? That's the popular opinion, in Australia at least. Uh, Mitch Marsh doesn't have many fans. He obviously, he scored an impressive 100 or two, and he's, he can look okay, but the problem is he's just, he can't back it up with a con- any kind of consistent form. And he seems to really struggle when the ball moves, and that should make him struggle in England. 
uh, I understand the logic behind playing him when you need some bowling relief. Obviously, you've got the fast bowlers. They're all bowling very fast and they need relief. They can't just keep bowling lots and lots of overs. But is limiting your batting output really going to help that? Why not just play Siddle and have Siddle bowl a whole lot of overs instead? Because Siddle's not going to break down. Uh, His action is not that difficult compared to the other bowlers. So really, shouldn't you just play him instead and have another batsman? But I guess the counterpoint, and it's a pretty valid point, is that the batsmen haven't made any runs anyway. Like, if Travis Head has averaged, what, 20? Not even, in this series? Is it really that wor- that much worse if you just play Mitch Marsh? And if he makes runs, great. Uh, if he doesn't, well, he's no worse than Travis Head, and he's bowling. So that should work, at least in this series for Australia. That should work. I understand that, but also that seems like a pretty short-sighted way of dealing with the team selection. Like, fine. You've got the wood over England at the moment. Uh, you're scoring 200 more runs than them every time because of Steve Smith. But do you really want to build your team around the idea of, oh, well, well, none of our batsmen are good enough, so we'll just plug it with Mitch Marsh and get some bowling as well? Really, that seems like a silly idea. Uh, and I'm not sure that'll fly against better test opponents like India, for example. Looking across to England, uh, England have released their match 11. And interestingly enough, they've dropped Chris Overton and they've dropped Jason Roy. But who they've brought in instead is Chris Wokes and Sam Curran. Now, this seems really bizarre to me. So you're bringing in two bowling all-rounders. They'll argue that both of them can bat. And I guess both of them have test runs, important test runs too. Wokes has a century and Sam Curran has won tests with his batting performances before. Thinking back to, for instance, against India in recent summers but a team that has struggled with batting and has really struggled to score consistent runs they're dropping batsmen designated batsmen and they're playing two bowling all-rounders instead I know Roy wasn't making runs but you really have to question the idea of playing more bowlers when you're already not scoring enough runs and that's really the reason why this series isn't going well it seems baffling to me you've got Everyone being moved up the order now. Root is back to three, which if you'd known from our first podcast of Plebs on Everything, I do not like Root at three. And I think he's shown why he shouldn't be at three throughout the series. You've got Stokes up to four. You've got Besto up to five and Joss Butler up to six. All those batsmen are too high. I like Stokes, but Stokes isn't a number four. I like Besto, but Besto isn't a number five. Joss Butler isn't a number six either. You really only get value from those batsmen if they're lower order batsmen coming in after established top order or top middle order batsmen. So why you would decide to play those bowlers instead really baffles me. Maybe they know something I don't. Maybe the pitch is an absolute green seamer and something that both Wokes and Curran are going to play really well on. And if so, all right, I'll cop that. But honestly, even if it is a green seamer, The extra bowling might be nice, but you still need runs. You're not scoring enough runs in this series. So how are you going to do that with these two bowlers? Seems bizarre to me, and I'm not sure it'll get it done, really. Because of that, I think Australia are going to win handily this last test, and it'll be 3-1. But the reason why this test still matters uh, is because of this new World Test Championship format that we really need to talk about just quickly to end this podcast. 
usually a test like this would be a dead rubber. You've got a team up 2-1 and retaining the trophy, uh, and usually it would just be a dead rubber and the teams would play with less pressure, like they still want to win. Teams obviously always want to win, but there's less pressure. There's less pressure to get the win and win the series because the trophy's no longer on the line. That's not the case anymore because World Test Championship points are always going to be on the line in every single test of a series, even after the trophy's been given up. And the big thing for England is if England can somehow manage to manufacture a win in this final test, they'll be able to steal an even amount of World Test Championship points as Australia, despite being outplayed for what I would have said is three and a half of the four tests of this series. They lost the first test, they were lucky to escape the second test with a draw, a miracle in the last half of the Headingley test got them a win, and then they got flogged in this most recent test. They don't deserve to escape, at this moment, they don't deserve to escape this series with even points as Australia. But if they can manage it by some miracle, uh, that would be really frustrating for Australia and, and, and really, really lucky for England. Uh, Australia have been the better team, as I said, for the majority of this series. England have a chance, and this test means that much because England have that chance to at least escape on even footing and not lose too much ground to start this World Test Championship. So because of that, both teams are going to be going hell for leather. I think they're just going to keep battling and really trying. And that's something that's nice. I like that. The dead rubber was never good. For instance, in the dead rubber in the last Ashes series over in England, I remember it was just a dead flat wicket. Nobody cared as much as they should have, and Steve Smith scored the easiest 100. He batted well, don't get me wrong, but he scored it under less pressure with poor bowling by the English bowlers. It was obvious that they had partied after winning the series, and they really didn't care all that much. Uh, And Australia, they can't do that this time. They would have partied, but they're going to have to be switched on because they need those World Test Championship points. So that's going to be really interesting, and it's kind of a reason that I'm going to be much more engaged as a spectator in this fifth test than I would have been otherwise, which is exactly what the ICC was hoping for with this format. So I think that's a step in the right direction. But that will about do us for this second ever episode of the Plebs on Everything podcast. I've been your host, Liam Halverson. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Rory O'Kane for coming on and contributing to our FIBA discussion. That semi-final is going to be an absolute ripper, and I'm really looking forward to listening to that. It's also going to be fun to have some different guests on in the future, and we've got some good ones planned. So please listen on, and we're going to have them on in the future. Uh, But in the meantime, feel free to contact us through our Facebook page, Plebs on Footy Podcast, as we'll be happy to field any questions in future pods. As well as that, feel free to send us an email on plebsmedia at gmail.com. Plebsmedia at gmail.com. I've been your host, Liam Helverson. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.